Well, we're going to read today from Luke 5, 33 through 39, continuing our trek through the Gospel of Luke, the record that Luke gives us of the life of Jesus. Luke felt it necessary to go and make an investigation of primary sources, people, and other writings recorded all down for us so that we could be certain of the things that we've been taught. He's writing to a man named Theophilus in the, in the first century. Uh, but Theophilus means friend of God, and anybody here who's a friend of God, Luke's written for you. So may the Lord open our ears and eyes to his holy, inspired, and inerrant word this morning. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. May God bless the reading hearing of his holy word to us. This morning, Martin Luther was a promising 22-year-old university student studying to be a lawyer. However, on July 2nd, 1505, he was caught in a violent thunderstorm as he was traveling through the countryside, and lightning struck very close to him. He was thrown to the ground and fearing for his life, he prayed to St. Anne that if she would save him, he would become a monk. Well, he survived, and he kept his vow. He entered the monastery, much to his father's chagrin, and he pursued the monastic life with an intensity that went far beyond the already strict requirements of the monastery. He wore himself out with fasting and prayers he wore out his superiors with lengthy confessions. He spent sometimes upwards of six hours in the confessional. Can you imagine that? What was he doing in that monastery? Here's what he wrote about it. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. Yet, in spite of all this, he had no peace, no joy, no assurance that he could stand before Almighty God. Well, perhaps to get him out of the monastery, his superior, Johann Staupitz, put him to work at the University of Wittenberg, gave him a professorship in the Bible. In that same intensity that he applied to the monastery, he applied to the study of scriptures. 
Now, he was teaching through Romans, and he came to the very first chapter where it begins saying, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And verse 17 stumped him. It says there, for in it, the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness or justice, they're the same word in the Greek, the, let's just use the word justice because that's what Luther referred to. In the gospel, the justice of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, he was troubled by that word just, justice, because he knew before an almighty God who was just, he stood condemned. But as he studied and contemplated and meditated upon this passage, he says, and, and here's where he was struck by a metaphorical lightning bolt that did not miss him this time. It hit him square in the heart. He wrote, Night and day I pondered on these verses until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his face, faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Well, that's when Martin realized that salvation was not by his works, but by faith, and thereupon discovered the joy, the joy of salvation. It's my hope today that all of us here today would also experience what Martin Luther experienced, the joy of salvation. And this passage before us today tells us how we can experience that joy throughout our lives. Now, in this account, an observation is made to Jesus. There is a question behind this observation. And if you look at the parallel accounts, they do record the, the people addressing Jesus with a question. And then we hear Jesus' response to that observation, that question. So let's look at two things today. First, we want to look at this question that uh, Jesus is asked, or this observation and the question behind this that Jesus, is, uh, that Jesus is approached with. And then let us look at how Jesus responds. Well, first, Jesus has asked this, or observed this. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, during Jesus' day, there were numerous prominent religious groups within Judaism. We read of several in the New Testament. Two of them are mentioned here in verse 33, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. These two groups would have been considered the very conservative religious wing of Judaism. If you wanted to go to the liberal wing, you went to the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees were all about morality and keeping the law especially the ceremonial law of God. And the problem that Jesus criticized was that it was only an outward conformity to that law. 
he compared them to whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones, rottenness. But on the outside, they were very circumspect in their practice. John the Baptist uh, was the last of the Old Testament-style prophets. In fact, you could say he was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the forerunner of Christ. He, proph- he was prophesied about as the one who would come and prepare the way for Christ, and he understood that that was his mission. He prepared the way for Christ, and he did this by calling people to repentance and to demonstrate that with baptism. Now, John himself, he lived this strict, ascetic, very simple lifestyle. The man ate bugs and honey and had some rudimentary clothes that he wore. He wasn't into the creature comforts, uh, suffice it to say. So he had this very strict lifestyle, and it seems that his followers did the same because they're coming and say, we fast and pray. John's disciples fast and pray often. The Pharisees were known to fast twice per week as well. You remember the passage that talks about the Pharisee in the temple, and the tax collector in the temple. The Pharisee says, oh, I, fa- I fast twice a day. And I tithe on everything. The Pharisees were well-known tithers as well. They, they tithed on the herb gardens they had. Could you imagine that? You've got a, a box in your window full of uh, a, you know, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. And, uh, and you figure out 10% of that and you bring it to the temple. That's how circumspect they were in their religious observance. So both these groups practiced their religion in a very strict manner. They were actually more strict than the Mosaic Law because if you go and look at the, at the, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, which is the Mosaic Law, there was only one fast required per year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. No other fasts were required by Moses. After the exile, once the Jews who had been run out of Jerusalem and who came back to rebuild the temple and and, uh, rebuild Jerusalem. Another four fasts, corporate fasts for all the people, uh, were added to the calendar. Now you could fast at other times if you wanted to, but that was strictly voluntary. And that was uh, usually to, well, always to express penitence, grief, humility, or a desire for God's guidance. Now the disciples of John and the Pharisees voluntarily fasted twice a week. I can't miss a meal very often, or I get very grumpy. No wonder the Pharisees were so grouchy. Anyway, everyone would look at John's disciples and look at the Pharisees and say, man, those people are really serious about their religion. They are very dedicated to their way of expressing their faith. And it makes you wonder, were there fat Pharisees fasting twice a week? Probably not. Well, along comes Jesus, and he is preaching and teaching and healing and attracting great crowds, yet he's not fasting. In fact, he's doing the opposite. He's feasting. 
And what's more, he's feasting with unsavory people like tax collectors and prostitutes and other social and religious outcasts. And that's why they come to him with this conundrum in their minds. The disciples of John, they fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but you guys eat and drink. What's up with that? Jesus and his disciples look very different than the disciples of John and the Pharisees. And if you look at the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, there are slight variations. Like I said, in Matthew and Mark, it's, they come to Jesus with an act, a question. Here is just a statement. I believe they're recording not just one event, but numerous events. People, this was a topic that made all kinds of people wonder, and they kept asking Jesus about this. You don't look like our normal religious person. It was a burning question for the people. Why does your religious practice look so different than the practice of the most serious religious practitioners? In fact, Jesus, you don't look serious at all when, you, when we see you carrying on with these heathens, drinking and eating and having a feast. Religious people do difficult religious things like go without food. You, you just look like a bunch of guys having a party. That doesn't look like religion to us. That's why Jesus was accused by the religious leaders of being a glutton and a drunkard. Well, everyone here, you're here in a Christian church, obviously, that worships Jesus Christ, and, and you're voluntarily here, so I think you would desire the religion of Jesus, not the religion of the Pharisees, we understand that the Pharisees were hypocrites. The question for us today is how do we pr practice properly the religion of Jesus? What should it look like? And does your religion today look more like the religion of the Pharisees or does it look like the religion of Jesus? Well, let's look at the, the answer Jesus gives. In true Jesus style, uh, he, the answer he gives is rich with imagery. Jesus speaks of weddings and clothes and wine, things that everybody likes. Well, we'll save the wedding imagery for last. Let's look at verse 36 to begin with, where he talks about the new and the old. He begins and tells them a couple of parables. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. That's pretty easy for us to understand. You've got a, a new shirt and an old shirt, and, and they're the same shirt, uh, but you, you need a, your old shirt has a hole in it, so you cut up the new shirt to patch it, but the old shirt's faded, and, uh, and, it, and the patch doesn't match. So you've torn up your new shirt, and your old shirt looks stupid. So that's easy to understand. And then verse 37 he talks about putting new wine into old wineskins. If you put new wine into old ones, uh, they'll burst and everything will be spilled and, and the party will be over at that point. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now this refers to the practice of using animal, uh, animal skin containers for wine. New wine uh, was still undergoing the fermentation process, so you would put it in a new wineskin and because it's skin, it, it expands and grows. Uh, will uh, stretch 
and it accommodates the release of gases that happens during the fermentation process. Once the skin was stretched, it was stretched. It, it wasn't that elastic because it had been dried. And it couldn't be used for new wine again. If you did, it would explode. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins, something everybody knew in those days. Well, he tells these two picturesque stories to make a point. And the point of all this is you don't mix the new and the old. The new and the old are not compatible with one another. The question Jesus is asked is about religious practice. Now, what we need to understand about these parables is what is the old and what is the new? What's old? What does Jesus consider old and what does Jesus consider new? Well, the old is the religion of the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples, especially the Pharisees. In those days, when you've, when you've gone a long centuries and centuries beyond the giving of the Torah, uh, what was added to the Torah or, or what was compiled in the teaching was gathered in a book called the Talmud. The Torah was God's law, the first five books of the Old Testament that were given through Moses. The Talmud was a commentary on the Torah. So the Talmud gave some specific instructions on how to carry out the 600 or so commandments that are included in the Torah. The Talmud is just a man-made book. It's not scripture. But it became kind of like the law that everybody followed. So, for example, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, Fourth Commandment tells you to keep the Sabbath day holy. How do you do that? Well, you should refrain from any labor on it. Well, what do we consider work? What's, what is labor? How, how much can I move on the Sabbath day and stay uh, from, uh, abstain from working? Well, the Talmud would tell you. It gave you an exact number of steps that you could take from your front door on the Sabbath day. All kinds of lists and guidance as to how to carry out what was written in the Torah. Well, the problem with this is that all these opinions about how to carry out these things became for the, for the Pharisees and the other religious leaders and religious people in that day, that became law. That became the standard by which everyone was judged. And Jesus condemned this sharply. He said in Matthew 15... He said it elsewhere as well. He, says for the, he tells us to the Pharisees, For the sake of your tradition, that's the Talmud, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the commandments of men, these traditions had been elevated to the place of the word of God. So the old is these religious groups who were wedded to the old interpretation of the law. They were hampered by the traditions and sayings of the fathers, elaborate ritual observances, prejudices, narrowness, and bigotry as a result. The new, on the other hand, is what Jesus was ushering into the world. Jesus ushered into a, in, in a new era, 
a new covenant, he says. When we take the Lord's Supper, he's, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant, this new relationship with God, new way of relating to God, this new bond with God that was available to human beings. He was bringing it in. The old covenant, the old way, was not bad. It was just the precursor. It was the foundation for the new. It pointed to this new covenant that Jesus was bringing in. Jesus was bringing in this new and more complete way of relating to God. Now the last statement that we have here, well, let me, let me just say this. This old way, following the traditions of men, that was what was, Jesus was saying, that's incompatible with what I'm bringing. It's incompatible with what I'm bringing into the world today. And unless you leave that behind... And listen to me, you're going to miss it. And that's where he comes to this last statement. It simply points out that some people do not, do not like change, and they resist it to the end. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. I don't want to try the new stuff. I like the old stuff. Now the Pharisees held strong to this philosophy. They did not want any part of what Jesus was bringing. And it filled their hearts with rage and murder that's the point that they resisted the new era that Jesus was bringing in. The Pharisees resisted it, but John the Baptist's disciples, we see several times in Scripture where they embraced it. Andrew, the brother of Peter, he was a disciple of John. And he was standing there with John the Baptist. John the Baptist sees Jesus walk up and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, and Andrew and the other disciple with him went and followed Jesus. And in the book of Acts, you have a couple of accounts where people were followers of John the Baptist, and now they were coming to, to know Jesus and follow him. They did not resist the new, but embraced it. So what is Jesus' religion that he's bringing in? What are some characteristics of it, this way of relating to God? Now let's go back now to verse 34. Jesus points us to a wedding. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Well, at a wedding, no one is fasting. If you're fasting, something's wrong. I mean, we're going to have a wedding here in November, and I guarantee you I'm going to be eating. I'm not, you know, I've been on this diet, and that thing's going out the window in November for sure if I'm still on it. We're going to have a party and, and a feast and joy and excitement. So nobody fasts at a wedding, and the, the, the bridegroom is there, and when the bridegroom leaves, the party's over. It's all over when the bridegroom leaves. That's kind of a signal, especially in those days, when they departed, that signal the party was over. Then you could be sad, say, the party's over. Well, as we said, a, a, a wedding is a time for joy, and those who are part of that, the, those who know when to feast, first of all, there are people who have a relationship with the bridegroom. You don't come into the wedding unless you have a relationship with, with, uh, with the wedding party. So this new re uh, religion, this new way of relating to God that Jesus ushered in is one that's based on a relationship, a relationship with the bridegroom. 
Jesus is that bridegroom. John the Baptist actually was one of the first to point this out. Uh, John 3, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John pointed to the fact that Jesus, he uses this imagery of the bridegroom. Jesus picks it up with John's disciples there present with him. I'm the bridegroom. And all your religious practice shouldn't be centered on a calendar. It shouldn't be centered on any man-made tradition. It should be centered around your relationship with the bridegroom. And that's true of us today. You can come to church. You can fast. You can pray. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can be baptized. You can do all these things. But if it's not centered around a relationship with the bridegroom, it's pharisaical religion. You know, people like to say it's not religion, it's a relationship. Well, yeah, it's a religion that, is, that has a relationship to it. It's all about a relationship. It's about a covenant, a bond with Jesus. And if we're getting up every day according to the calendar and saying, I'm going to read my Bible in the morning like a good Christian should, and we're not encountering Jesus or it's not, it's not uh, enhancing our relationship with Jesus, we're just doing something out of tradition out of ritual. It's empty. It's pharisaical. So true religion, true practice of our religion, must be centered on the bridegroom. That's why we shouldn't just show up to church every Sunday. We should show up prepared to worship, to bring our mental and spiritual engagement with God to actually listen to what we sing and to mean what we say in our songs and prayers, etc. To open our ears to seek to understand what the Scriptures are saying to you and me. So true religion, true religious practice is centered on the bridegroom. And then secondly, and briefly, I know we're out of time here, but true religion is marked by joy. You know, we're not... We're not fasting right now, Jesus says, because the bridegroom is here, and you're not sad at that point. It wasn't the appropriate time for mourning and grieving. Joy should be a driving force in how we practice our rituals. If you look at the Pharisees, there was no joy there. And this was a common problem in the New Testament. You see it here, and I think the reason that Luke puts this, if you think about Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this in their uh, Gospels, it's an important lesson that all three of them felt needed to be included. Matthew speaks to a, a Jewish audience, and what he was saying to them in sharing this story is don't go back to Judaism, because that was a temptation. It was much easier to be a Jew in those days than it was a Christian. Jews 
it, it was illegal to become a, be a Christian, not illegal to be a Jew, much easier. So the temptation was to go back, and they're saying, look, don't go back. That's not what Jesus would have wanted. And to Gentiles, that's who Luke was writing to, Theophilus, that's a Greek name. He was a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys through the Gentile world. So he was writing to those folks whom he encountered on the way. He said, don't, don't be pulled by Judaizers. Judaizers were people who came along and said, okay, you can be a Christian, but you've got to follow all the Old Testament laws. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to refrain from this food and that food, and you've got to follow all these rules. And yeah, Jesus is great, but in order to be really accepted by God, you've got to follow all these rules. And so Luke has included this to say, no, you don't get joy from following a bunch of, of rules. We need to hear this because inside everybody's heart is a legalistic tendency. We have a performance tendency. We think we've got to perform and for people to like us and we transfer that up to God. We've got to perform and for for the Lord to love us. Yes, I'm saved by Jesus, but I've got to I've got to do all these things in order to be happy in the Lord, to make him happy. Well, that was what the Galatians and the Colossians and the Philippians were tempted to do, especially the Galatians. And Paul writes them a very pointed letter, and he asks them this interesting question. He asks them, why, why are you going back to, these, to, to Judaism and following all these rules? And he asked them this question, what has become of your blessedness? The NIV says, what has become of your joy? When you act like everything is dependent upon your performance, it steals away your joy. You don't have joy in the free gift of grace and mercy that Jesus hands out because it's upon you, and you're never good enough, so there's no joy. Paul says, look at yourselves. You've lost your joy. The word there is blessedness. It, it denotes the transcendent happiness of a life beyond care, labor, and death. And that joy can only be experienced in the gospel, that despite our failings, despite our sin, Christ has, by his sheer grace and a free gift, embraced us through his life, death, and resurrection. He actually even gives us the gift of faith for us to actually believe in him. Now, when you embrace that religion, there is joy. So I'll ask you this question to end. Where's your joy? Is, does your religious practice give you joy? When you get up in the morning and read your Bible, when you pray, when you come to church, when you fast, if you fast, when you give your offering, is it marked by joy? If not, and I'm sure we fall in that, so this is just a reminder. That should drive us, not just being here and doing what we think is the right thing. David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, I hope that 
you will take what I'm saying as an encouragement because uh, it's meant that way, not to be a condemnation, um, but a, a real desire. And, and I, I'm preaching to myself here as well. Do we, is our religious practice centered on Christ and does it result in joy in Him? Well, surely we've all fallen short in that area. Well, may God help us to be washed and cleansed from this sin of apathy and cold-heartedness. May our hearts be once again warmed to him as we consider his great love for us. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and just the fact that it is a two-edged sword that really exposes us, cuts us wide open, and is living and active and working in us. We pray that it would do its work, Lord, that we would be people marked by joy, true joy in, in you, in, in a relationship with you. And Lord, if anybody's here who doesn't know that, we pray, Lord, that we would call upon you, that we would know the gospel of grace, not our own works, not our own legalism, but, Lord, we pray that our service to you would be fueled by your grace and love to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.